Coming up on this week's show, one of Britain's oldest software companies gets sold. Argo Commando, remastered. And we hear about the worst bug in video game history with John Bird. This week's show is brought to you by Beer 52. Hello and welcome to the Retro Hour podcast, episode number 250, your weekly dose of retro gaming and technology news with me, Dan Wood. Me, Ravi Abbott. And me, Joe Fox. Can you believe that? 250 episodes. Come on, boys. <laughs> How many times have you done that now? <laughs> I just love the YouTube copyright strikes. Yeah, that's like? true. <laughs> 250 though, guys. This is absolutely crazy that we're still doing this in a pandemic as well. It's yeah. just amazing that there's still this much retro coming out. <laughs> well, it, oh, you, you'll run out of guests after 10. it's been a scramble some weeks but you know we get we get through we get by we do and it's like honestly 250 episodes i mean i didn't actually realize that we're hitting that kind of because it is a landmark you know it's halfway to 500 um which i'm sure we'll reach one day uh but i i just think that when you think about how much talking that actually is back to back that is a lot of hours of this that we've done yeah, I mean, considering we called the retro hour, when was the last time we were actually an hour long? <laughs> yeah, normally you, an hour half. Because you could just say, "Oh, well, it's two hundred and fifty hours." No, yeah, exactly. <laughs> but but it, it's it's probably more about three, four hundred hours with the you know the rambling and stuff like that that we do. But yeah, that's crazy. What a crazy number! And nearly every episode we've had a guest as well, which is absolutely mad. You know, that's a huge range of people throughout the video game is- industry and successful and not that successful and so many different stories to success and so many different paths as well but we've also noticed so many similar patterns happening you know Hmm. a lot with development a lot how people were influenced by other computers it's it's really been an interesting journey we're not gonna stop and this week i mean we are going to be joined by someone who's going to tell a story that you probably haven't heard before because it's something that could have actually completely hampered the launch of one of our favourite retro systems, the Sega Dreamcast. And this is, when I mean, we've titled the show, The Worst Video Game Bug in History. And we're going to be joined by John Bird, who was actually the Director of Development Technology at Sega of America. And he's got a fascinating story to tell. So get yourself a nice cool or a hot drink and enjoy the chat that's coming up with John. I mean, we, we do a little bit of a preamble, but essentially we let him go because this story is just so incredible that it needs to be told and, in its entirety. And, you know, John's like absolutely fantastic. He's founded Gigantic Software, which is a huge mm. company at the moment. Uh, do you like the pun? <laughs> um, also, <laughs> he was the senior engineer at the 3DO company. So, you know, we want to get him on in the future to talk about M2. And he's just got so much knowledge and so much industry interest. This is absolutely fantastic. And he's going to tell us all about the Dreamcast launch and what went wrong behind the scenes. I can't believe that I've got one of these in my sound effects bank and I was too slow with it. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> Poor Stan's got one of those in his sound effects bank. I've got it as well, but I don't know which one it is. <laughs> need a mobile one for when you're cracking bad jokes. <laughs> well, actually, Ravi's done something that, I'll be honest, I, I never want to do. But you've actually gone back and listened to some of our earliest episodes to kind of see how far we've come in this journey. Yeah, so we sound amazingly slick and hyper at the moment. No, we don't. But um, oh, don't listening too much. to the first episode was really interesting because you can kind of tell a bit that we're we're quite nervous. And, you know, we get a lot of listeners as well that say, oh, Joe, 
Joe's the new guy, isn't he? But actually, he was on episode three. Come on. Yeah, I, didn't, I, didn't, I didn't realize it was that early. But yeah, Ravi sent a comment over the other week, which was only from a year ago. And it was like, oh, that Joe guy, he's too enthusiastic. Get rid of him. And I was just like, oh, man. I and agree. It was like, that was me. And it was like... 2019 i was like yo wait how long have i been on this show <laughs> and wow. it was going on about i was a new guy i was like oh <laughs> you, you and your bloody cheeriness i know oh man <laughs> well let's have a listen back to how oh do we have to we were back then here we go hello and welcome to the retro hour a brand new weekly podcast hosted by me dan wood and ravi abbott hello, hello. Ravi. how are you doing good good now uh, we're going to be here every week talking about all things retro gaming and technology and you can get the podcast every week off itunes on soundcloud and from the website theretrohour.com now we thought we'd start this podcast up because we've been on youtube for a couple of years now haven't we ravi yeah kind of doing amiga stuff mainly but also a few a few general big retro videos as well. But we thought we'd go back to roots and do a good old-fashioned old-school audio podcast. Oh, nothing beats radio. <laughs> now, what we're going to be doing every week is talking about stuff that's kind of retro gaming and retro technology related, but we, we've looked around. There is quite a lot of retro gaming podcasts. However, most of them have kind of got a bit of an American bias on them, I think. Yeah, and they, and they kind of tend to be Nintendo uh, when in America, very Nintendo-focused. All NES, isn't it? Yeah. So uh, we, we thought we'd do this podcast with a bit more of a European and uh, in particular, you know, UK slant stuff that was big over here that necessarily wasn't all that big in America, stuff like the Amiga and uh, the 8-bit home computers as well. Yeah, the kind of Ataris as well, even though that was popular in America, there was a bit of a uh, European scene. My name's Dan Wood. I'm Ravi Abbott. And this week we are joined by Joe Fox. Hello, Joe. Hello, Dan. Thank you for having me today. Hey, now, Joe. uh, Joe's been a mate of mine for years now, and you know we often have uh, retro gaming nights, and um, I have been known to have the odd uh, rage quit when Joe beats me at games. Yeah, the odd uh, <laughs> scranny. That happens uh, almost every week. Um, we had a road trip to the uh, winter warmer. We did, didn't we? We yeah. did, yeah. The first time I met Ravi. You want to shake <laughs> him off now? <laughs> yeah, that's it. How right I was. <laughs> Can't get rid of Ravi. <laughs> <laughs> oh man! I, I, I noticed that I I said my name really fast. So I was like, "This is Ravi Abbott." <laughs> Just to get it over and done with. I, I, you know what? I thought you two sounded fantastic. Um, interestingly, Dan sounded really young. <laughs> I don't know what was that, what was going on. I, this sh- this show's aged me a hell of a lot. <laughs> well, I was looking back at the actual news that we had on the first episode and. It's really interesting to see, actually. So the stories that we were covering were the Dreamcast 2 trending on Facebook. Can you believe that? <laughs> How many times has that happened during the five years of doing the show almost? I'm sure we would mention that every six months. Oh, Dreamcast 2, it's definitely going to happen. It's really relevant to today's show, actually. <laughs> and another story was the Amiga Vampire 2 FPGA. So that had just been announced. And now, actually, wow. we've seen that as a, as a whole standalone system. And the Coleco console. <laughs> I love the fact that that was in our show notes on the first episode. Yeah, the Coleco <laughs> console, which uh, we all know was a disaster. And uh, there's books being written about it. Check out uh, Smoke and Mirrors at the moment. And um, also Final Fantasy VII. So the Final Fantasy VII remake. And uh, we all know that happened. That only just happened, though. So when was this? Like mm. five years ago? And now yeah, coming up I only years. just I completed Final Fantasy VII remake during the lockdown as a brand new game. So that's crazy that like we were talking about these things and like 
you know, the Dreamcast 2, that's coming next month. Uh, <laughs> I'm joking. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> With the Coleco <laughs> add-on. The Coleco <laughs> add-on. Like, it's crazy. The, like, that's that's insane. Like, I wonder if we, in another 250 episodes time, in five years time, we'll look back at today's news and just be like, oh yeah, that still hasn't happened. Yeah, do you think they would have cracked N64 emulation or actually at that, <laughs> that time? Maybe, maybe. <laughs> well, guys, here's to another 250 episodes. And me sounding even older. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> this is the retro hour. <laughs> well, let's get into some up-to-date news. Now, actually, this is, obviously, it's never up-to-date on this show. We cover retro stuff. But we do talk about remasters of video games. And actually, speaking of games that you've been playing in lockdown, Joe. Yeah, so we actually, we spotted the story last week, but we didn't have time for it. So uh, Commandos 2, uh, which is an awesome, you know, kind of like real-time strategy game, uh, back from the early 2000s, a game I absolutely loved on PC is coming to the Switch, which I was super excited about. That excited about that when we were talking about it last week, um, I found out it's just come out on Xbox One as well a couple of months ago. So I actually been playing that all week and really, really, really enjoying it, but really, really struggling with it. But yeah, it's coming to the <laughs> Switch. Um, I think it's coming out in November 22nd or something like that. It's a interesting game, Commandos, because it's like yeah. an isometric, real-time mm. tactics game, but it was at a fixed position. So yeah. it, it kind of looked like a lot of the art was like hand-drawn, and I'll tell you what, it was always hard, wasn't it? it yeah. Was, so it was always a real tough game. Um, I've actually contacted the guys, Pyro Studios, and I'd really love to get them on because uh, they were a Spanish developer, which was okay. quite r- rare back then. And... Uh, they created, if you think about it, it was a really kind of, it seemed very British, didn't it, Commandos? Yeah, and, uh, you know what? I mean, I'm only on, I say I've been playing it all week. I've played it about three times or an hour at a time and I'm I'm doing terribly. I'm only on the second mission. But yeah, absolutely. It, it's the whole kind of like vibe of it. Obviously, you play as British Commandos in the game as well. I mean, some American ones and stuff, but the British ones tend to stand out. Um, and their and, accents as well yeah all the narration and all the story in the game as well it's all you know british actors and then all the kind of the, the black and white footage used in between episodes and stuff is all british as well so i was shocked when you said last week you'd reached out to them uh yeah. to find out that they were a spanish studio i was like oh wow yeah it, and it came for the pc and mm. uh this is a remake of it, so they've actually remastered it. But also, like, I'm surprised that you're finding it so hard because they said they've remade the tutorials. And I even found the tutorials absolutely solid back in the days. But they're saying they've redone the tutorials, they've redone a lot of the movement in it and the user interface. But they've also, interestingly, they've removed extreme political symbols because it was very much, you know, you'd have Nazi symbols there. You'd have all of the kind of war stuff all out there on 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 a play it was very realistic and then do you remember the other ones like um, men of courage and uh, strike force and uh, destination yeah. berlin yeah man i remember all of them and you know it's just i was telling my wife stories about it as well like all those games and stuff just just trying to reminisce uh, i was playing it yesterday morning on my day off and uh, she was just looking at me like what on earth are you on about like listening to like all this like winston churchill <laughs> Still playing. It's what I do in my spare time. (laughs) But yeah, man, I'm excited to see this on the Switch. Um, The controls on the Xbox One have been a bit, bit difficult. I'm I'm not, I'm not going to lie to you, but obviously it's because it's an old PC game. But we'll see how the Switch holds up as well when it comes out. Wait, wait till you get on those levels where you're on the boat 
and you've oh, got to God. drive the boat, yeah. <laughs> but then you'll be complaining. <laughs> the Switch is just becoming like the home of like these re- retro games, really, isn't it? You know, if you want it on a modern platform, it's just, I think it's the best platform for those kind of classics. Oh, yeah. And I'm hoping that we're going to see the whole Commandos range on there. Because, mm. you know, they, these were really cool titles and uh, they were very like, not multiplayer, they were very solo mm. kind of playing and, and, as Joe said, really hard. And once you cracked that level and you kind of got through there, you felt a real, real satisfaction with Commandos. Yeah, definitely. They've got like a sense of isolation about them yeah. as well. Yeah, because like, you're a lone commander. Like, not isolation, yeah. but immersion like with them as well. Like you just, I don't know, like yesterday I was playing it and then before I knew it, hours had gone by and I still hadn't blown up this bloody tank. <laughs> and you've got limited weapons, you've got limited yeah. ammunition, so you can't just go on a mad spree, you know. I love the fact that they've made the game easier and Joe still can't do it. You must be an older Joe, you see. Yeah, reaction. honestly, I, I was saying to my wife, I was like, I was so much better at this when it came out. And I just looked it up, 2001, so I would have been 11. God. So and wow. now I'm 31, I, I'm like, I'm doing terribly. <laughs> it's interesting because it was a budget release when it actually came out. And now it seems to be like a main, a main release. So, uh, you know, it must have gathered huge momentum. Well, speaking of budget games, let's talk about a company that were the kings of the budget games back in the 80s and 90s. One of the longest standing British software companies, Codemasters, has been sold to, of course, Take Two, who seem to be buying up everything recently. Um, And Codemasters, I mean, they were founded in 1986. You know, they are one of the longest surviving British software companies, and they've been sold for $1 billion. It's really interesting because, like, if you look at all the different British companies that were out there, they had, like, Mm. uh, Rare, you know, and they were taken by Microsoft. Um, uh, They had EDOS as well, which was bought by Square Enix. DMA, which is now also Take-Two, and then uh, turned into Rockstar North. So, you know, it's, it's really interesting having these kind of companies bought up. And it seems in this COVID time, a lot of people are, are, are doing trading with companies and uh, studios are moving all over the place, really. But I mean, what, what I'm worried about is, and okay, you know, having an independent company surviving for that long, you know, it, it, it's quite rare. But the fact that they've now sold to Take-Two, fair enough, you know, these software acquisitions happen. But what I'm really hoping doesn't happen is the iconic Codemasters brand vanishes. Mm, yeah, it just gets taken up and then disappears yeah. or killed off. Like, like you know, we, we had the Sony studio that were absolutely yeah. fantastic that did Wipeout and that just totally kind of disappeared, you know. Yeah, when Cygnosis name went, that was, you know, a big blow. But I remember, you know, being a kid and like seeing... The, the Codemasters logo on, you know, how many games did they do back in the day that were incredible? The Dizzy series, for example, and Micro Machines, that Codemasters logo flashing up at the start. I mean, to me, that is, it's an iconic brand of British video games. And I'm just hoping that's not going to be something that goes away. Yeah, um, they, they had a great crossover as well. So they really got into the PlayStation and like yeah. that, that was one of the companies that kind of, you know, they did the PlayStation music, Colin McRae Rally, uh, awesome titles. But also, interestingly, Joe was telling me that um, Dizzy, Fast Food Dizzy, which is one of their titles, is actually getting packed with the Switch, right? Yeah, um, I've I've not read into it too much, but something I read earlier on on uh, Nintendo Life was um, that a certain version of the Switch um, is going to be packed with the remake of Fast Food Dizzy, 
which is mm. you know it says it's a new a new dizzy game but when you actually look at it, it it isn't actually a new dizzy game it's a remake of the 1989 fast food dizzy but yeah it's coming packaged with the switch so i'm assuming it's going to be on it's not going to be a physical game or anything but it'll be on certain versions of the switch um which i don't know if that's coming off the back of this you know with it being with codemasters being sold and stuff but it was interesting to see that it's still quite relevant because i think like I'm not, you know codemasters are like, oh, yeah my Chris machines and dizzy and stuff can't be worth that much but then it's sold for a billion you're like okay maybe yeah. it's a lot more relevant than i thought <laughs> well like and to have that as a packing game on the switch i mean mm. you know that, that's that's a big deal mm, yeah exactly so it's pretty crazy and do you think we'll see some of these old games being revisited or like like Micro machines, or you, you know, they've tried to, to smash bros. bring them back, but maybe they <laughs> might have more money in it. Like, I, one I really want to see is Pete Sampras tennis. That was absolutely wicked. That. Yeah. <laughs> As soon as I saw that, I thought Ravik's hoping for a remastered version of Pete Sampras Tennis. You can smash Dizzy on that as well. There's a cheat, so he walks along the uh, line and you could just smash the egg. It's great. So, uh, I mean, you know, congratulations to Codemasters owners, but you know, look after them. Yeah. They're a brand that means a lot to us. Now, load screens are obviously something that are very nostalgic. And I'm going to link up an article on a website called Games Radar, um, a celebration of Commodore 64 loading screens. We'll talk more about it in just a minute. But um, it looks like the, the era of the loading screen might be gone for good with the new generation of consoles that's just come out. Yeah, it's interesting that because a couple of years ago, we were talking about how Namco kind of owned the rights to not loading screens, but like interactive loading screens. And the patent on that ran out a couple of years ago. And it was, we covered it on the show. Um, but yeah, there's another article here saying how on, um, I think it's on Games Club, saying that essentially with the, you know, obviously we're not, not talking very retro right now, but with the PS5 and the Xbox Series X, it's, it's the end of an era. It's the end of loading screens. Um, so which is a really interesting read. I mean, obviously they still exist in some um, in some circumstances. Like earlier on, I was actually watching a Metal Jesus Rocks video on the Xbox yeah. Series X and he compared Red Dead Redemption 2 loading times uh, on his Series X and on his Xbox One. And the Series X took 30 seconds to boot it up and, that, and Red Dead Redemption 2 is a notoriously, you know, long loading time on that game. So there is going to be loading times but then in the same respect the new spider-man game apparently from turning the ps5 on to the game starting up is only 40 seconds that's not the game like into the menus and stuff that's like full-on you're running around the streets of spider-man to play so yeah it's very interesting because obviously you only go back a couple of decades and you had to sit there and wait for your your tape cassette to load Mm. and you couldn't even touch it otherwise I think this is a thing that they they want and that they're aiming for, but because this is the early life in a console, mm. you know, the games are optimised, they're put in there quick. Mm. It ain't going to be the case by the end of it. I reckon you have huge loading times. Or you you may have screens coming back, you know, by the end of the Xbox yeah. or the PlayStation 5's life. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm going to agree with you there because of we all know the start of, like especially these days the start of a new generation the games tend to be very similar looking to the kind of the la- the end of the previous gen you know yeah. the graphically they're not too much of a difference and this seems to be the main focus right now is these games are running so much quicker blah 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 it's the same game but it's running quicker with no loading screens and stuff so i absolutely agree in four or five years time seven years time when we're seeing the end 
of PS5 and Xbox Series X, are we going to see these massive loading screens again because of the games that they're just putting out then are just so insanely powerful, do you know what I mean, and big? We just don't know. So I don't think it is the end of loading screens, but right now with, with modern gaming, we're probably going to see much, much shorter ones. But you know, even looking at this article on Games Radar about Commodore 64 loading screens, mm. and I remember, you know, lo- loading games from tape, and you'd always get the, you know, when the game was un- uncompressing, you get the flickery kind of borders around mm. the game. And often, I mean, there's a few screenshots in here as well, like the Elite loading screen on the Commodore 64, and you've got um, Armor Light in there as well. And, you know, Pete Doherty, he was one of the best Commodore 64 artists, and he, he made these fantastic graphics mm. that you'd see while the game was loading. I mean, admittedly, it probably added about 10 minutes onto the loading time <laughs> to actually load that screen. But it just really, I mean, that sense of waiting for the game to load up, I think having, especially when you've got music as well, like, you know, a nice banging Rob Hubbard soundtrack or a Ben Daglish track, when it was loading up, there was something about that experience that really added to the anticipation of what you're about to experience, I think. That was after you had the crack screen as well. <laughs> like, it was, I had the music there. I'll ignore that. I, I think you're completely right. Even, you know, just thinking now, like, not even once again, sort of retro, but not our retro, the, you know, the PS2 GTA games, you know, they yeah. had really long load times, but just the famous, like, San Andreas music and stuff like that, like, I hope it isn't the end of those little moments and stuff. Like, yes, it's cool. Like, I was watching it and I was like, oh my God, my life's so hectic at the moment. I need to buy an Xbox Series X so I can get more gaming in because of there's no there's no load screens and stuff. But then, like, when we sit here and we talk about it, it's like, yeah, no, it, it's something nostalgic about it. <laughs> and if they do release another Ridge Racer game for the new generation, there's got to be a Galaxy in game. Oh, yeah. You play while it loads up. <laughs> it's not Ridge Racer without that. Yeah, that's very true. And I'm like, when was the last Ridge Racer game? The last one I got, I think, was 3D on the 3DS, and that must have been knocking on 10 years ago now. I was going to say, launch <laughs> title for the PS5. <laughs> yeah. I only know I Ridge, Ridge Racer 4, so... Yeah, I love that game, though, and it's like... I mean, that was one thing I really missed about the... Well, the previous generation now, you know, the Xbox One, the PS4, that there's no Ridge Racer game on that. Because, you know, Ridge Racer 7, I think, was I really hammered that on the PS3. Mm. That was one of my favourite games, but it's such a fun game. recall really many arcade racers on the last generation. Mm. I feel like PS3 and Xbox 360, for me, was the kind of, like, the last time you saw those kind of arcade racers. Like, now it's all just kind of, you know, what do they call them? The serious racers? What do they... The simulation. Simulation, yeah, yeah. Yeah, you just seem to see the simulation races and stuff. It's probably people screaming at me right now going, Rich Racer is a simulation, but I just thought it was a bit more yeah, arcade. Heck. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, they were, I mean, you know, kind of going on a tangent here about racing games. They were always the ones that I preferred, the racers, you know, mm-hmm. like Lotus Turbo Challenge mm-hmm. and Ridge Racer and Daytona, you know, games that... I mean, all right, I can sit there for half an hour tweaking my tyres and my engine size and everything, but sometimes you just want to crack on with a race and get into it. Gran yeah. Turismo I, had yeah. some uh, sexy loading screens, didn't it? it yeah, Gran Tur- I've got Gran Turismo, um, most of them actually, but it's, again, they just feel a bit like, like Joe said, it, and Forza as well. I mean, I've got the Forza Horizon games that are a bit more arcade focused, but you get it's all that messing around before yeah. you get into the game. You, know, you just want to jump on and just be Banjo-Kazooie or Super Mario. <laughs> yeah. And, well, I mean, actually, Mario Kart is a good example of an arcade racer that's still popular. Yeah. But, um, yeah, you just want to hurry up and, you know, come last quickly. They bring back cartridges. <laughs> <laughs> well, again, that's where the Switch excels, isn't it, you know, in terms of that. But, you know, I, I guess, you know, for you, Joe, as a console kid, you probably didn't experience all that many loading screens. 
you know, at, at home. But, you know, for, for us that use cassette tapes and discs. <laughs> Amiga, it was like, insert <laughs> oh, this <God>. 12. You <laughs> it, it, <laughs> were waiting for an hour. It's interesting that you say that because I remember when we first got a PlayStation, my brother saying, if we could play these games, the exact same games on our Mega Drive, I would prefer yeah. to play them on the Mega Drive because of the loading times. So he was like, we're playing games like, funny enough, like Porsche Challenge and Hardcore 4x4. And they had these, you know, in comparison, probably not even that long load screens compared to, you know, some of the games which are out now. But I just, I, that always stuck with me that he was like, if I could play this on Mega Drive, I would play this on this Mega Drive because I don't want to wait 30 seconds. So, yeah, yeah so I, I did experience loading screens, but probably not to the capacity you boys did. <laughs> Well, rest in peace, the loading screen. We hope we haven't seen the last of you. We'll uh, we'll put that link in our show notes and everything else we talked about at theretrohour.com. Talking about classic cartridge machines, I mean, the last big one, of course, before the Switch, the N64. Now, there's been a really interesting story um, that's actually been kind of broken by a good friend of, of this show, a good mate, Metal Jesus Rocks, who's uh, done this video about the um, this kickstarted HDMI-ready Nintendo 64 and it turns out that it's maybe not all that it seemed. Yeah, so I was watching his video earlier on. He's come come up on the show twice today, actually. Um, but yeah, he's, oh, we love him. Yeah, we do we love, love him. him. We do love him, old Jason. And uh, yeah, he did a review of the Warrior 64, which is a um, a Kickstarter, which has been backed, which is essentially a like you say, it's a it's a HD ready um, N64. So from what I understand, it's a custom controller, very similar to the Hori controller, custom shell but with original N64 innards. So I'm not 100% about that, but I'm, I'm fairly certain what that means is that they're, they're taking apart the old N64s to make these, you know, to put into these shells and then they have HDMI cables. But essentially from what I understand is they they listed them as ultra HDMI mods and they right. re- reached out to Metal Jesus and gave him one early and said, can you review it for us? And essentially... Uh, he started playing it and he was just like, this isn't ultra HDMI. Like this, this isn't what I thought it was going to be. And he compared it to, um, some of the, you know, some of the actual ultra HDMI kind of converters he's got and stuff like that and reached out to the company and said, this isn't ultra HDMI. And they, and they were kind of baffled by it. They're like, yes, it is. It is ultra. It's ultra HD HD. This is, this is the new technology. And he, he was like, no, it's not. And he sent them a comparison video and essentially what it turned out was they didn't realize ultra hd was an actual thing and they thought they they'd coined like the name <laughs> ultra hd right. it's it's weird i was looking at it because they say ultra hdmi yeah. which means it's a hdmi cable but it's not like uhd which is 2k yeah. but there seems to be a mod so ultra hdmi mod that's already out there yeah that's that's good and that is what they were kind of claiming that they had on, were. on board until he not realizing, it wasn't. yeah, not realizing that what that was a thing essentially, yeah, yeah <laughs> so, essentially, yeah. And, and also, it looks you ever seen Book Rogers, yeah, um, the first series? It looks like the enemies, the Cylons, <laughs> yeah, <those> <laughs> I mean, it is a bit sharper and a bit nicer than normal N64 because obviously it, it's being played on HD, but there's still some blurring and stuff like that, which the the N64 was kind of, you know, uh, famous for with its blurry graphics. But yeah, I think in the video, he says that they've kind of turned around and said that they are going to now do an ultra HDMI mod. Like now they know what it is. Um, but that's going to be another another product that they're selling. So they're not kind of rectifying this or anything. 
Um, you know, he does point out that the console itself is a very nice looking console, really nice controller and stuff like that. But it's just not quite what they said it was because they didn't realize what it what, what it was essentially. Well, it's it's a Kickstarter here, yeah, and they've got three hundred and sixteen backers as we speak, and they've hit thirty one k, so they've actually been pledged. Yeah, but, um, it seems it's really weird. It seems to be in Hong Kong dollars as well. Oh, okay. That's uh, so I, I'm I'm clueless about what the conversion is as well. But you can get a DIY kit where you're yeah. actually doing it, fixing it up yourself, or you can get the console package, and that's one thousand one hundred and sixty-three Hong, Hong Kong dollars, dollars which is one hundred and fifty yeah. American dollars. Ah, okay. Which isn't bad. Yeah. yeah. I mean, what, what's an N sixty-four in decent condition with a controller go for now? From from Kex in the UK, about hundred pounds. Um, well, yeah, yeah. So, and if you want Did one you of get the, the pad nice, as well, yeah, that's with a pad. But if you want one of the nice, kind of clear, see-through ones, a little bit more. So it's not a, it's not a daft price because what's that going to be about one hundred and twenty quid? So probably about one hundred and fifty quid for shipping and stuff. And you get the HDMI out on here. And okay, admittedly, it might not give you this best possible like two K image, but we're talking the N sixty four here. Yeah, and re- I mean, I would never play that system on a, a flat screen TV anyway. Yeah, to me, that only looks good on a CRT. Yeah. Also, please tell me that he swapped cables um, whilst doing it. You know, if if he'd kind of maybe use the original cable and then maybe swap one, there might have been a huge difference. Because I know with a lot of these <laughs> Chinese products, they tend to send cheaper cables. Can you imagine? Right. I'm not too sure about that, but can you imagine it turned out that there was just something wrong with the one that he's got? <laughs> just the cable, yeah. Yeah, and he's gone out there and done this video to like his million subscribers. I, I'm sure, I'm sure he's, he's, he's tried different I'm sure, ones, yeah. yeah, he's very thorough with these things. But yeah, back to Dan's point, you get the nice, hor- it's not a Hori controller, but it looks like the Hori controllers, Hori controllers you know, where it looks a little bit more like a PS1 controller. And they they tend to be about 30, 40 pounds on their own anyway, you know, for like the knockoff ones mm. of them. So I don't think it's an absolute ripoff or anything like that. Um, and he never says that. He never says it's a ripoff or anything. He just says it's not what they said it was. So Right. But yeah, interesting story to say the least. So if you want to check out Metal Jesus Rock's video, of course, I mean, interesting product, and I'm sure there will be fans out there who will be pleased with what they get, you know, getting a simple solution to hook your N64 up to an HDTV. Um, I'll link that up in the show notes, along with everything else we talked about at theretrohour.com. Something else we mentioned on the show before, Civitas Universe. Give us a little recap on this, Ravi, and this new Kickstarter. Yeah, so this is an awesome game. It's been made completely with the Amiga, <laughs> and it's a board game. Um, it's called Civitas Nihilium, and uh, actually, it's quite rare. You know, I had a copy of it, and I and I play. I've played it. It's really nice. A solo. I remember you doing a live stream or something. Yeah, right? solo um, tabletop game uh, with a soundtrack. You put the soundtrack in. You kind of play yourself. It's really good. But um, it seems to be like quite rare. People are really after this title. Well, they're doing a new Kickstarter and a new run, and interestingly they've added something else onto the Civitas universe, which is called The Mysteries of Profundium. And this is basically a text adventure for the PC. So if you've missed out on getting the Civitas game, you can get this limited run of the new prints of it, but also you can get this um, interactive text adventure for uh, Windows PC as well. And it comes on a little tape USB kind of device as well, which is really cool. And this is uh, James Bradley as well, and um, he's been talking with us, and you know he works at Pinewood Studios, so this guy's really got some big passion and uh, interest in these kind of uh, sci-fi fantasies and uh, 
movies and things like that. Well, we had him on a couple of years ago, didn't we, to talk about it? Yeah, yeah. And uh, it's great to see a reprint as well because these games were getting quite rare and a lot of people were asking about them online. So uh, great to see this Kickstarter back out there. It's already been funded, but I suggest you go and check it out, the Civitas universe. Right then, now before we get into our chat this week, talking about the biggest video game bug in history, something that nearly sabotaged the launch of one of our favourite consoles ever. This could have really messed up the launch of the Sega Dreamcast. It's a massive story. John Bird is going to be our guest in a couple of minutes' time. Before we do that, we're actually recording this show at a much later time than usual. Now, normally we do the show like, what, 2 o'clock on a Wednesday afternoon is normally our recording time. Right now, though, it's actually 9pm. We're all at home. I'm recording this week's show at home as well. And because it is our 250th episode, we thought we'd have a little celebration. What are you drinking, Ravi? Oh, oh! I, I actually, I got a delivery this morning of beer fifty-two, and uh, I'm a huge fan of the kind of German beers and yeah. the pilsners, the more light beers. That's what I like, and I've already gone through two pilsners already. Um, <laughs> it's just fantastic. I thought, you know, two hundred and fifty episode. Why not kind of enjoy it? Yeah, well, I'm the same. I've got a beer 52 on the go right now as well. And we'll mention them because, of course, they are sponsoring this week's episode. We love our amazing friends at Beer 52. And we want to sort you out with an incredible offer. Now, if you've got your phone nearby right now, or maybe you're listening on your computer, open a new tab in your browser and have a look at this website right now, beer52.com forward slash retro. We want to give you free beer, a free case of award-winning beer. Oh, it's fantastic. And I tell you what, actually, um, there's this thing called golden tickets as well. So I opened yeah. mine today. I got a golden ticket and that meant I could get a friend and even have free delivery of the beer as well. So uh, <laughs> you may have an opportunity to get more. Start the beer chain going. Yeah, so this is our friends at Beer 52. Now, if you're not familiar with them, they're essentially beer boffins and they're on a mission to find the very best beer anywhere on planet Earth. And every month they visit a different country and they find the best small batch breweries and sample their finest craft beers. And then what they do is they carefully put all this together, curate it into a case that they send out to their lucky members. Now they've got 150,000 members at the moment who all rate the beer that they receive each month. So you know you're getting the best stuff in here as well. So these are a collection of the highest rated beers over the last year. So you're going to get the best of the best. And like you said, you know, there's German beers in there as well. I mean, They've been doing that recently with um, Oktoberfest being on. But you can also pick what kind of beer you want in there as well. Like Ravi likes a light ales. If you're not into that, if you prefer dark beer, you can pick the dark option. And every case comes with an award-winning beer magazine ferment and a tasty snack to enjoy along with your beer. And there is no minimum commitment. You can take the free case, try it out if you want, see what you think. If it's not for you, pause or cancel at any time. So all you have to do, and of course, you'll be really helping out the Retro Hour podcast by doing this, is nip on right now to this website, beer52.com forward slash retro and claim your free case of eight craft beers right now, beer52.com forward slash retro. Thanks to our very good friends at Beer52. Now, of course, we do have a Patreon that we run as well to pay for this show. Uh, anything we get on Patreon, we put back into the running of the show. And uh, that's got all our sexy new kit to do the show from home recently as well. And, of course, we do 
our exclusive patrons-only podcast, The Retro Hour After Hours. Now, I must admit, I'm feeling a little, little bit nervous about this. Next week, you're going to be interviewing me. Ha, ha, ha. Here we go. <laughs> the tables have turned. <laughs> so we've done a couple of these so far. Episode one, we interviewed Ravi. Last week, we interviewed Joe to find out what happens behind the scenes of the most rock and roll member <laughs> of the Retro Hour team. We talk about our retro gaming pickups, projects we've been working on. Essentially, it's us guys letting our hair down. And you do get about an hour long episode twice a month as well. So, I mean, it's about as long as this show actually, isn't it? Yeah, but also backing for £3.50, you can get an ad-free episode as well. So that's yeah. like £3.50 for four episodes. It's, it's pretty crazy cheap for an ad free version and it helps us pay for everything i mean all our hosting the equipment that we use the software that we use for the show the vst plugins if you want to get nerdy everything that we get into patreon we put back into the running of the show this week ravi got a desk so he could set his little studio up at home with the money so i mean you know it all goes back into it and we really appreciate your support and we do our retro hour patrons hangout as well once a month where you can join us and get nerdy about all things video games uh, one of those coming up before the end of november and of course for backing us on patreon you will get a mention on a few future episode in the very prestigious drum roll joe you know what i've probably got an actual <laughs> drum roll on my roadcaster but you know the desk will do. <laughs> <laughs> we'll have to mess with the sound effects next week the retro hour hall of fame just like this week joe timu hutimini ben stoll ian colquihone marius anderson and chad clark who all made donations into the running of the show. We massively appreciate that, guys. Thank you so much. And if you'd like to do the same, you'll find it right now on our website at theretrohour.com. Another way you can help the show as well, I mean, we appreciate, you know, times are hard for a lot of us right now. We totally understand if you can't back us on Patreon, but just for sharing the link with your friends on your social media or leaving us a nice review on Apple Podcasts is always appreciated as well, or your favourite podcast client of choice. Ravi, you've been looking through a few of those, actually over the last couple of days yeah there's been some really nice ones recently actually and uh here's one of them that i'm gonna read the heavily saturated retro podcast scene with poor quality content was heading for a 1983 style crash step in ravi and dan who with their slick format and their even slicker presenting voices saved uk podcasting good stuff guys uh thanks for all you've done to the community um yeah that's that's a bit hardcore that one is <laughs> <laughs> i mean you know we, we think there are some amazing retro gaming podcasts from the uk as well you know we love our mates at arcade attack retro asylum yeah this rgds there's brilliant podcasts out there as well if you like our show you should be checking out every week too and I love this one from Matt Beef, who commented as well. He said, the must for all retro gamers. He discovered it by accident, and then <laughs> he pulled his Amiga 500 from the loft, went looking for a bit of information, started on episode one at the end of July this year, and now he's caught up by the end of October. Uh, that is uh, an insane amount of episodes to listen to in one summer. And he can't believe you still haven't bought a Vectrex yet, Revy. Yeah, yeah, that's that's my next step. <laughs> right, episode 300, I'm going to have a Vectrex. <laughs> you heard it here, episode 250. <laughs> so listen, we really appreciate your reviews, really appreciate your donations. Any way you can help out the show, give us a retweet, tag your friends in our Facebook post. It all helps get the word out there, get us into that podcast chart. So listen, we really appreciate that, guys. And now to celebrate our 250th episode, let's get the story of the worst video game bug in video game history with this week's special guest, John Bird, next on the Retro Owl podcast.
You're listening to the Retro Hour podcast and it's time to welcome on this week's very special guest. Now, we are particularly excited to hear an incredible story about one of our all-time favourite systems. I mean, we won't make no secret on this podcast, we're massive fans of the Sega Dreamcast and a, a system that we thought, you know, at the time was criminally underrated. But luckily, over the last couple of decades, it does feel like retro gaming fans have really taken that system under its wing and realised how incredible it was. Now, we're going to be talking to John Bird, who is actually the director of development technology at Sega. So let's welcome him to the show. Hello, John. Hello. Thank you so much for having me on. It's a great honor to be part of, I think it's your 250th podcast. Did I get that right? Oh, That is a lot of talking. That's incredible. (laughs) Well, it's amazing to have you on, John. And like I said, you know, we're going to get some stories from you that I know you haven't ever spoken about in a podcast before or maybe in any kind of public forum. And um, anyone that was a fan of the Dreamcast and Sega is going to want to hear this stuff. Uh, before we get into that, though, I mean, just as a little bit of background, I was reading that you actually wrote your first video game back in 1981. I mean, how did your life kind of lead you to that point? Oh, goodness. Well, I grew up in a really, really small town in rural West Virginia. And uh, when I was maybe 10, 11 years old, they shipped me off to the special school for special kids who didn't quite fit in with the rest of the other classmates. I mean, I was really one of those kids who they gave math assignments like, okay, John, you'll need to add up all the numbers. You'll need to tell us if you subtract infinity from zero, what would be the result? And so I got all these bizarre math assignments that were just for John Bird. And one of the things that they did is they sent me off every Friday to a school in the big city. And at this school, they had an Ohio scientific computer. Now, this thing was a big, blue, massive box. And the thing that I understood about this blue, massive back, uh, blue, massive box is that you could play games on it. And this seemed like the coolest possible thing that you could do. So I think that uh, I was part of the very first generation of video game kids so i i got video games in my head and the very idea that you could play games and have fun with computers uh happened to me when playing video games and programming video games were two sides of the same coin from there what was your first job in the industry how did that come about well it depends on how you define a job right when i was 13, 14 years old, I started making games for the Commodore VIC-20 and the Commodore 64. Mm-hmm. I wrote a trivia game, for example. I put it out on bulletin boards. You know, now, now I think the day, nowadays we call it free-to-play. Yeah. Well, back in the day, we called it shareware, and we mm. got checks from people who seemed to like the game. So I wrote a, a Commodore 64 game called Trivia. You know, uh, brilliant and creative naming I had back then. <laughs> <laughs> and I kept getting a few checks here and there from it. So if you do a thing, you make money from it. I suppose you can call yourself professional. I didn't break into the industry, though, proper until 1994 early, where I ended up at a wacky video game startup called 3DO. 3DO's goal was to bring the multimedia experience into every possible uh, living room so that everyone would have the experience of having one audio, two video, and three 3DO. So that was my big break in. And you worked alongside some industry legends there as well, um, 
like Trip Hawkins and uh, RJ Michael as well. And uh, did you did you see Dave Needle as well uh, oh, hanging yes. around at the Freedio company? That was really one of the things that struck me when I came into 3DO is I had cut my teeth on playing these video games that these heroes of mine had created. And so in a way that I don't think they'd ever experienced before, I fan worshipped every single one of them. I was like, oh my gosh, RJ Michael, <laughs> you worked on the, the Amiga, the Commodore Amiga. I mean, that was really an awesome machine, man. And I just, I love you and I'd love the opportunity to work with you. And he was like, yeah, that's okay, John. We'll find a place for you. <laughs> good, such a good impression. <laughs> and well, I mean, um, you know, we, we've had both uh, RJ and Trip on this podcast before, as, as I know you're aware of, John. And um, you know, fascinating stories from the 3DO company. And I remember it, you know, as a kid who had an Amiga around '94 when Commodore was going under, and everyone kind of thought that you know 3DO was going to be the next big thing. It was so hyped up. I mean, what did you feel about the system when you were there then, and kind of the vision that they had? You know. At the time, I was just so happy to be working with people I thought were cool and to be working on video games and getting paid for it that I had no thought for anything but what was going on at the time. I think, uh, for example, I had read all the advertisements when I was a kid for Archon and all the, the EA games, and here was Trip Hawkins in the flesh giving me advice on on what, how I should talk to game developers and, and, and what kind of books I should read and how I should uh, deal with other people to make it well in the game industry. And I very much was a fanboy who managed to, managed to be a, himself into a job in the industry at that time. So I remember there was actually, uh, there was a big company meeting where a lot of new employees were, were welcome to the company. And one of the new employees that was welcome to the company was a guy by the name of Bill Budge. He developed Pinball Construction Set, a, a bunch of other impossible titles for the 6502 microprocessor. And huge meeting. Uh, everyone kind of goes around the room and talks about uh, why they want to be part of 3DO. And everyone says, well, I wanted to be part of the future technology. I wanted to move the technology forward, you know. And I just said, I just wanted to work with my idols. And I wanted to work with the cool people in the industry. And everyone kind of looked at me like, oh, who's this guy? And, and so it continues around the room and it gets to Bill Budge. And, and he says, hi, I'm Bill Budge. I've worked in the industry for a while. And I go, Bill Budge, oh my God, you're my idol. And he says, oh, what happened then? And I was like, nothing, you're, you're, you're still my idol. And everyone, <laughs> in the room, everyone in the room laughed and thought I was a fool, which I probably was, come to think of it. <laughs> so uh, how much hands-on, how hands-on did you get with the M2? What did you think of that system as well? <laughs> well, we can go down that route, and I'm happy to talk to you a little bit about it today. But part of my job in 1995 and 1996 was to pitch the M2 to prospective game developers and say, hey, this is the system that you want to develop for. This is the system that is going to be the future of games. And 
to a very large extent, even though it never shipped as a game system product, it absolutely was. It was really the first contemplated game console that used a, a triangle renderer, basically a modern graphics renderer to do all its graphics. And we brought in a team of people who had previously worked at SGI down the road to design the system. And it would be recognized today as pretty much a modern graphics processor. The, the, functionally, its architecture was the same as a modern video game system. And that thing was designed, I believe, back in 1995. So I want to say that that was really the first modern game console design, even though it never saw the light of day as a product. But come back and ask me that come back and ask me to tell you uh, some more M2 stories the next time we do an interview because I have because there's a bit of intrigue that happened over those M2 those M2 demos that I think would be very good storytelling and I think actually would be a little surprising it it described both why M2 happened and why it didn't happen so I think M2 is its own ball of wax and that'll be a a good long half an hour discussion so John we've got you on really to talk about sega because uh we can hear that you've worked with some fantastic companies and we've got to get you on again to talk about the m2 and and a few more detailed things but you have a story that's never been heard before about sega and especially the dreamcast so we'd love to hear about you know you joining sega and uh, what really happened with the dreamcast so thanks for asking me about that i'm going to tell a bit of history that I don't think everyone has heard in its entirety. Specifically, it was the time that I was baptized in fire in the worst possible video gaming bug that ever happened. And you guys have never heard about it. Nobody's ever heard about it because we did a really good job of keeping it secret. Um, And to be honest, part of the reason you've never heard about it is because I and the other people involved did a really good job of keeping it quiet at the time. Um, And the fact that we kept it quiet was actually maybe the most important part of the story. Uh, A lot of the companies that were involved at the time aren't anymore. They don't exist. And so the story I'm going to tell you is the worst video game bug of all time. So I want to start by talking a little bit about the Dreamcast launch itself. So the Dreamcast in 1999 the company spent over 100 million dollars in 1999 dollars to try to tell the world about this new video game console uh my team was responsible for developer technical support so we dealt with all the companies in north america making sure that they had all the answers to their questions they had all the development kits they had all the technology they needed to make games for the sega dreamcast um one of the things that i remember about this launch was just how much san francisco was overcome with marketing and announcements and media buzz there was nothing else on the television at the time other than sega is coming out with a new game console they're calling the dreamcast and there were there were parties all over the city to 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 get rock stars and rappers and everybody else interested in this game console. And I remember being shuttled back and forth between the office and 
and several Tony bars in San Francisco and in these huge limos filled to the brim with, uh, with liquor cabinets. And, and there was, there was such a media buzz created at the time that it was difficult to turn on the TV or even do anything in the game industry without hearing about this specific buzz. And so there was implicitly a lot of pressure on us tech guys, of which I'm one, to actually deliver a functioning game system. So one of the things my team was responsible for at the time was um, some of the parts of the SDK, the, the, the technology that was used by all the game developers to build a game. And one of my favorite parts of the Sega Dreamcast was the, um, the Aka chip. Now, that was the sound system that was built into the Dreamcast. And unheard of at the time, one of the things that Aka could do is it could play back simultaneously 64 channels of sampled audio. So the idea that you could play back that number of simultaneous samples and create a a soundscape that rich, nobody had, had ever heard of that before. I mean, by far the biggest limit, and you had to buy a special sound card to do it at the time, was around 16 voices. So the fact that you had so many sound voices available was was a big deal then. Um, at the time, actually, a lot of game developers used MIDI, which is standard for representing um, game music, to do their, their music playback. But at the time, uh, one of the things the Dreamcast did is to make sure that all games had... Uh, digital music in them, the same stuff that you'll listen to on your um, on your iPhones nowadays. So it was my job to make sure that all these game systems uh, were able to ship using game developers and game development code from the United States. And so our team had that that level of responsibility. So it was it was a few days after launch, I think that I remember there was this blonde guy from the marketing department. I didn't hang out with marketing too much. You know, my team was mostly heads down and writing code and solving bugs. Guy passes me and says to me, so John, I got a call from one of my journalists and they say they're having a problem with their Dreamcast. And I'm like, oh, and he says, yeah, they're, they're playing the game ready to rumble and they play it for 20 or 30 minutes and the game crashes. And I'm, I don't think too much about it. I'm like, well, let's get him another copy. Maybe the copy, maybe the copy scratched, something like that. Then four or five hours later, somebody else in marketing says, oh, have you heard about this journalist? He's having trouble playing a game. I said, yeah, 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 I'm, I'm aware of it. We'll, we'll get him a new copy. He's like, no, it's somebody else having a similar problem. Hasty meeting gets called. All the exec staff is there. Do we have a problem with these games that are part of, part of the, the Sega launch team. And, and so one of the things that became clear from that meeting, and as the meeting went on, my stomach sunk lower and lower and lower, that there was a problem with some of the launch titles where they would play fine on a Sega Dreamcast for maybe 20, maybe 30 minutes, maybe an hour, and then they would freeze solid. Now, I'm going to remind you guys there's a hundred million dollars trying to make this game system be as awesome as possible. And everybody in the room is looking at me and the other technical people in the room saying, what's going on? 
And I knew about as much as you guys do right now about what was going on. We tested the games before launch. We made sure they worked. Uh, one of the things that became clear from this meeting is that the game audio would stutter um, and then the game itself would freeze. Um, it only happened on games that were made for the North American market. It only happened in this particular case on some uh, games from, from the company Midway. We'll talk about Midway in a minute. And it only happened on games that used that 64-channel audio driver that my team was responsible for that could play back simultaneously 64 channels of audio. So I left that meeting realizing that I probably wasn't going to be eating at home that night or possibly the night thereafter, partly, or probably the night thereafter. I uh, We stayed late that night. We did some diagnosis on some local Dreamcast, and we weren't able to replicate the problem. I'd like to talk a little bit, uh, if I could, about video game system bugs and and the the nature of bugs when you're when you're building a game. Uh, when, when you when you look on YouTube, you see a bunch of videos for things like uh, glitches and bugs, and you see videos of guys walking through walls or characters jumping up through through heaven and flying through space or something like that. Those are those can be called glitches or bugs, but the things, but those those problems usually for a programmer have obvious and clear solutions. This happens. Uh, you write code to detect the condition and you fix it. Much scarier are the kinds of bugs that actually cause the entire game to stop. Those are, at least from the perspective of companies that make game consoles, those are things that should never happen. And when I say should never happen, I mean that in capital letters. There's a huge team inside every video game console developer that works to make sure that, that you never see anything like that. So one of the things that, that my team set to work on very quickly, once we heard about this bug, is trying to figure out how to replicate it in the labs. Because if we couldn't replicate it, we couldn't see it. And so gradually, it became clear that when we got copies of the affected titles, we could not make them crash on the Sega Dreamcast development kits. That's a normal way that we solve all our bugs. We make them happen on the development kits. We can figure out why they crashed and when and how and blame the right people. Didn't crash on the development kits. Um, we had another way of solving bugs where we built a, develop, uh, a debug version of the game that had special debug code in it. The Midway games didn't, didn't crash on those either. The crash only happened on Dreamcasts that were shipped to the United States. And inside the Dreamcasts themselves, there, there was a special port that was intended for doing debugging, but all the U.S. Dreamcasts ha had covered that port with a bit of epoxy, so people couldn't reverse engineer the games that way. So we couldn't get in that way. And that was what I knew when I went to bed that night. I knew that there was, we had a crash bug, we had a showstopper bug, and all I knew about it is that it couldn't be debugged. So that was, I think, maybe three or four days after the launch of the Sega Dreamcast. The next day, yet again, another hands-on meeting. I drag my ass in there. I'm tired and bleary. And it becomes clear that the next thing that we need to do, because all signs point to this being a problem in the audio driver that one of my teams was responsible for developing. And so we need to get on site with the guys who made the game and the guy who wrote the audio driver. And we need to figure out what's the source of this bug, what, what's causing all these, these Dreamcasts to crash. 
So I call up the guy, one of the guys actually, who worked on the Audio 64 driver. And for the purposes of this discussion, I'm going to call him Jason. So Jason and I, uh, I, I, I call him, he's, he's all bleary in the morning. He's like, what, what's, what's going on? I say, I need you to meet me right now at the San Francisco airport. And he's like, I don't have a car. I'm like, okay, that's fine. I'm going to drive up and get you. So I drove up all the way to Marin. I picked him up in a car and he kind of wanders out of his house wearing his pajamas, his pajama bottoms and some slippers and a coat thrown over that. And I say, thanks for coming. We're going to take a little ride to San Francisco airport and we're going to go to San Diego. He says, okay. So I drive directly to the airport. I buy a couple tickets and we're on the next flight to San Diego. So we're going to San Diego because in San Diego, there's, uh, there's a bit of Midway down there called Midway San Diego. And so this team was responsible for developing a bunch of arcade hits and additionally several games that were launch titles for the Sega Dreamcast, right? They did uh, Hydro Thunder and Ready to Rumble and a bunch of stuff like that. And so we got there. It was plumb in the middle of the night. I, I remember taking him to... Uh, a random drug store and saying, you can buy anything you need for this trip. I, I, I want to make you comfortable, but you may be here for a little while. So we figure out what this bug is. And he said, okay, he bought a handful of toothpaste and toothbrushes and stuff like that. We slept for four hours and we went to the offices of Midway San Diego. So the Midway San Diego team, uh, at the time it was called pod five. You know, there were, there were five pods in Midway San Diego and actually, as it turns out, it, a pod five with an exclamation mark in it is the cheat code for a lot of Midway games that were developed at the time. So you might try entering, and if you have a copy of Ready to Rumble, you might try entering pod five, pod space five exclamation mark, and that'll unlock all the characters in the game. Anyway, we went to go visit pod five because these were the guys who developed one of the crashy titles. And so we set up a war room to try to figure out the source of this bug. Um, one of the, one of the producers on the game, um, was a guy named Brian and he said, I asked him, have you seen this bug in person? He's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, my friend has this Dreamcast that manifests this problem a great deal. I was like, yeah, I, I need to see it. So he brings it in and we put it on the table in the center of this war room we've created. And sure enough, when we put in a copy of Ready to Rumble, boot it up, play it for 20, 30 minutes, slowly the audio would start to lag, and then the game would freeze solid. And, and so while this is going on, I'm thinking of all these tens and hundreds of millions of dollars that are put into marketing this thing. And I've got all these, these visions, these horrors of press suddenly coming out saying, Sega Dreamcast launch a failure. System buggy. System cannot be played for more than 20 minutes without a crash. So I went into a mode where I stopped sleeping so much and just focused, as, you know, as many good programmers might, just on solving this one bug. So we didn't have much of a lead except for this one Dreamcast that seemed to manifest this bug more frequently than others. So the bug didn't happen at a specific point in the load process. It didn't happen when you played a specific character. It didn't happen when you uh, 
when you played the game with multiple controllers in the inputs, it didn't it didn't happen when you played it with no when you let the game run with no controllers in. There was no rhyme or reason to it. The crash just happened. So let me give you an idea what a what a Heisen bug is. So the worst imaginable kind of bug is one that happens for apparently no reason. I mean, bugs happen uh, usually when you scroll down three and and click over two and then press one menu item. That's a normal bug. A bug is a crash that uh, a Heisen bug is a crash that happens randomly for no explicable reason. And that was what we seem to have, a bug that could not be debugged with a development system, a bug that could not be replicated, and a bug that we couldn't explain. And all the people who are running Sega were, were calling me every other hour asking for updates. Have you fixed it? Have you found the source of it? And the truth of the matter was, even though I was speaking gently to them and saying that we were putting all available resources into finding the bug, I hadn't a damn clue what was going on. Okay, so I kept feeding the the programmers on the Midway San Diego team as well as um, as as well as Jason. I kept feeding him large quantities of sugar. I mean, if you if a programmer goes into crunch mode, then you have to eat programmer food, and that's going to be mostly sugar or pizza. So I made sure there were vast quantities of um, uh, licorice whips and. Uh, Tootsie Rolls and Hershey bars and things like that in the office to make sure that we kept going. So the point that we were able to get the bug is we were able to figure out that it happened only on titles from Midway. And Midway was the only one using this Audio 64 driver. And we also seem to notice that it always was the case that the audio system wigged out a little bit just before the final crash occurred. And so we're working on the assumption it had something to do with audio, but we didn't really know what exactly what it was. And so about 48 hours into this bug, Jason and I and the rest of the team said, you know what, we're exhausted. We need to get some sleep. So I dragged my ass to the car. I said, don't worry about it. We'll, we'll go get some sleep. We'll, we'll have that tomorrow. And so I haul our asses back to the hotel and I crash and pass out for a few hours. Then I, I wake up the next morning and I go, like I do, to Jason's room and I knock on the door. No answer. And I'm like, hello, you know, you come in. He doesn't answer me. So I go down to the front room of the hotels and, and ask the front room, did, did, Jay, did Jason leave? And they were like, oh yeah, he checked out a little while ago. And I'm like, What? So the, the guy who was responsible for the code that was most likely causing the launch of the Sega Dreamcast to fail had, as it turned out, skipped town from San Diego, had caught the first flight back to San Francisco. You see, he had said something the night before, and I didn't really think that much about it. I didn't realize what he was trying to tell me at the time. He said, well... I know this bug is important, but I've got a tri- I've got a vacation scheduled, and I've, I'm going to be taking a vacation to um, Mardi Gras in in Louisiana, and I'm going to be there with some dancing girls and having a really good time. And I laughed at him off. I was like, <laughs> "Yeah, I know. We all really want to take a vacation right now. I should have listened to him." 
because uh, he met, I heard out not through he didn't contact me. He actually contacted a friend of his at the company and and told me and told me through him that he was on his way on vacation with his dancing girls. So when I went back into the office in Midway, San Diego, I did it by myself. I wasn't really that familiar with the code that he'd written. He'd left all his development systems there. He'd even left some articles of clothing there. So it was basically everyone at Midway San Diego looking at John Bird saying, okay, can we fix this bug? And I nodded politely and I said, yep, we'll get to work on it. Let's see if we can kill it. Um, So one of the things that you have to do when you're in management, if everyone else is panicking and nervous, you have to appear confident. You have to appear like you know what you're doing. But I, I, I have to tell you guys, I was horrified because I realized that I would be the guy who prevented the launch of the Sega Dreamcast if it turned out that I wasn't able to kill this bug. So me and the lead programmer are grasping at straws on the workbench. We've got the Sega Dreamcast that he brought in that tends to manifest the bug more frequently. And we've disassembled it on the workbench. And we're trying to figure out, is it is the thing that's causing the crash related to the clamshell lid? If we open the drive at a certain time, does it cause it to crash? And it seemed like it might involve something involving the clamshell lid. And so we tried crashing it multiple times by opening the drive at a certain time and closing at a certain time. Um, and the game system kept getting hung up on the table. Um, we kept sliding it a little bit back and forth. So... At one point, more in frustration than anything else, I did something really stupid that you should never do with electronics. And I removed the modem from the Sega Dreamcast. So all Sega Dreamcast came with a modem built in. It was one of their main selling points is that you could play online games with this thing. First game system that ever came with the ability to connect with the internet. Anyway, I yanked out the modem from the, the, the crashy Sega Dreamcast and the game crashed. I was like, oh, it must be static electricity. It must be something else. So I plugged it back in. I ran the test again. I wasn't able to manifest the crash. And the lead programmer, a brilliant, brilliant programmer for Ready to Rumble 2, a guy named Terry Bertram comes over and says, did you get it to crash? And I was like, Ugh, I only got it to crash because I introduced some, uh, some static into the bus that uh, the modem lays on. He said, but you got it to crash. And we just kind of sat there and we looked at one another for a little while. And so grasping at straws, I sat down with him. Were we able to manifest the crash by removing the modem from the Sega Dreamcast? That made no damn sense whatsoever. But in fact, we were able to crash the system <laughs> relatively repeatedly by removing the Sega Dreamcast modem at a certain point in the game. Now, what the hell would, would the modem have to do with with audio bugs and with audio crashes and with sudden stops. I mean, the, the game, the games in question don't even use the modem. It was random shots in the dark at that point. But I phoned back to Sega Japan. I talked to a couple of the hardware engineers. I said, I'd like you to take a look at noise possibly occurring on the G2 bus. Okay. I have to be slightly geek here, but hopefully it won't be too geek. Um, the Sega Dreamcast architecture at the time had uh, a couple buses that were designed to handle different kinds of data. There was the the G1 bus, and the G1 bus was intended to handle 
information from the GD-ROM drive. It was basically the, the optical media that you stored all your games on. But there was also a G2 bus. And on the G2 bus was a, a connection to kind of the main controller for the system, the Holly, the Holly GPU, and thence to, to the Itachi microprocessor. But on that bus as well was the Yamaha Aka sound chip I told you about earlier, as well as the modem unit. So I wondered, could there be something happening on the G2 bus of the Sega Dreamcast on these specific games relative to the Audio 64 engine that was causing this crash to occur? I got a crash to occur. It could just be because I was putting transients on this bus and trashing everything else on the bus as well. But at the very least, it was a lead. It was at least something other than... than then going from sleeplessness to sugar and back and forth again. So let me, in, in final, tell you the bug, the source of the bug, and what actually happened behind the scenes that none of you have ever heard about. And it's it's as complicated as a set of dominoes falling over, this crash and what its cause was and what the resolution was. But what was happening is that the sound chip on the Sega Dreamcast this, this sound source, uh, it was designed as a general purpose uh, synthesizer. So it was something that was designed for making music uh, for a whole bunch of devices, not just the Dreamcast. And because it was a general purpose synthesizer, it had an input for MIDI. MIDI is, again, this audio standard that lets you connect to synthesizers and things like that. Now, the Dreamcast was never designed to be an audio synthesizer. So as a result on Sega Dreamcast launched from Tokyo, built for the Japanese market, that pin was tied to ground, which meant that its input was known so that you never get any kind of stray data. However, only on the US versions of the Sega Dreamcast released for the North American market, the hardware engineers had left that pin floating. And by that, I mean, it wasn't tied to anything. There, there was... Uh, there was no clear electrical input on it. So, um, and for most games, work from Sega of Japan, it seemed to work fine. But what happened was because that pin wasn't tied to anything, very rarely based on the angle of the sun and the point at which the moon was hanging in the sky and the point at which, uh, the, and the, the thermal noise in the room and, and a whole bunch of other stuff that was unpredictable, occasionally that chip would detect that some MIDI input had been received. Now, for the driver that the for the driver that was used on most games, um, the driver handled that and ignored that interrupt, meaning that it was like, okay, well, I received some signal on MIDI input, I'm just going to ignore it. But the U.S. driver, uh, because the system never was intended to have a MIDI input, actually jumped to a random location in memory. And it's true, up until that point, we'd never seen a Sega Dreamcast that actually received MIDI input because there was no MIDI input to receive. So what would, what happened in the final analysis on all these Sega Dreamcasts that were shipped in the North American market and that journalists were playing and that were crashing was that random noise at the quantum level. Now, if, if Einstein was right, then this noise was fundamentally at a universal level unpredictable. So this was a Heisen bug in the most absolute sense. You could not predict by the definitions of physics when this bug would occur, that you'd receive a spurious input on the MIDI input, 
and that would trigger an interrupt to occur to the Audio 64 driver. And because the Audio 64 driver hadn't been primed to receive it, the Audio 64 driver would send a jump to random memory and the Sega Dreamcast would slow down or crash again randomly. One of the truly random factors in modern electronics is a thing called thermal noise. And I guess you guys know that many kinds of electronics perform slightly differently when they're hot, when they're overheated, that they'll break down, that they'll they'll basically the 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 electrical properties of the interconnects the interconnects between the system components behave differently. And so one of those those things that happens again to all electronics is that um, an element called thermal noise comes into play. You see those little ones and zeros that jump around inside your computer are never absolute ones or zeros. They're usually 0 0.99997 or 0 0.9995. Well, one of the things that Einstein taught us is at the quantum level of reality, the hotter things get at that level, the more randomness is introduced so that that 0 0.9995 becomes a slightly bigger number and a slightly bigger number. Now, for normal Sega Dreamcast, that didn't cause any problem. But for ones where the pin was left hanging in an indeterminate state on the MIDI input, that result was unpredictable at a quantum level. It was impossible to determine what the chip would do in that circumstance, just like all electronics. I'd like to talk to you a little bit about the aftermath of that bug. So another program on my team managed to roll a new version of Audio 64. And we mastered it. We shipped it with a couple other improvements. Like uh, we also threw in a fix for the Sega Dreamcast. The Sega Dreamcast, um, we managed to include a library where the Sega Dreamcast would support VGA output at that point. So we hustled that via FTP over to Midway San Diego. They integrated that to, into the game. They did a rebuild. Lo and behold, the game didn't crash. It worked correctly. And we hustled that GD realm through manufacturing as quickly as possible. There were some there were some nasty discussions there initially between Sega and Midway. Midway. Who was going to deal with with all these crashy games out there on the system? But that was resolved amicably at the time. So very very quietly at that point, Sega and Midway undertook a strategy by which they could recall all the defective discs and bring them back into the fold, as it were, and quietly replace them with corrected disks. So I think at the time, my memory may be a little fuzzy on that, but I think somewhere around 10,000 or 15,000 copies of the Midway games were manufactured. These probably include Hydro Thunder and Ready to Rumble. Um, possibly they include Mortal Kombat Gold or NFL Blitz 2000, but uh, my memory in that is a little shaky. A bunch of copies of those games escaped into the North American market. And a few customers complained, and we obviously sent them new copies of the games. But for the repressed, corrected copies, um, those games will have a logo in the top right corner that says Hot New. And that was code to the rest of us that this was the, the version of the game that had the bug fixes in it. So we made a point of making sure that everybody who brought in a copy and said, this doesn't work quite right, got a free copy of the upgraded version. And we put calls out to all our retailers saying, We'll trade you out one for one all the copies of, of the games that you've received. So we did our best. <laughs> we did our best to make sure that all those copies were destroyed. So if 
in your garage or if in your in your den or wherever you happen to have a copy of those two Dreamcast games, Hydro Thunder and Ready to Rumble, and it doesn't have that hot and new logo on it, then congratulations. You've got a copy of a game that, that Sega actually wanted to destroy back in the day. And I don't think there were that many of them out there. There were only a few of them out there. Um, it's a bit like having a, a double die coin from the U.S. Mint. It's something that that uh, it's a mistake that never should have really gotten into circulation. I imagine now so many people are thinking, right, that's it. I'm in the garage or the attic this week. I was literally about to say, I'm, we're going to start seeing copies of them <laughs> on eBay. People saying, you know, this is one of the ones people want to destroy. Sega wants to destroy this one. So we'll see if there's a surge on eBay. <laughs> yeah, we will. You know, one of the things I always wondered about uh, that story, I always imagined that Jason would come back after vacation and, you know, maybe try to get his, you know, go back to work and help me solve future bugs. But I never saw or heard from Jason again. He left his clothes. He left his job. He left all the stuff in his office. And I'm not 100% sure what became of him. But I thought it was too good of a story. You know, one of the things about this story is that at some point you have to decide that a piece of information is no longer current events and you have to decide its history. And I decided at the 20-year mark that it would be okay to start telling this story because I think it's an important part of video game history. Yeah, I mean, 21 years since the Dreamcast came out. And the fact that even the fact that you solved that problem, John, blows my mind. I mean, what would the implications have been like if you didn't fix that bug before launch? The, the history that you never experienced was one in which there were articles on every forum about how the Sega Dreamcast was crashy and had all kinds of launch bugs and problems. That story never came out. And I think that bug, as traumatic as it was to me, was probably one of the best highlights of the career, of my career personally, because you didn't hear about it. And Sega did, and, and before, before this becomes a story about how awesome John Bird is, I worked with some incredible engineers at the time who helped me diagnose this thing, both in the US and in Japan who helped me figure this thing out. And inside Midway, there were some heroic efforts at the time to make this bug invisible. And I'm so proud of the guys at the time to who made that possible. I was part of it, but I was not, I was by no means the only guy who, who made the bug vanish. Well, John, what an incredible story. Um, and it's, you know, getting exclusives like that is always on our 250th show as well. Um, and I know you've got many more stories to tell, you know, about 3DO, for example. We'll have to get you back on to share more of your insight into um, these projects that you've worked on and these uh, these fires that you've put out in your career. Oh, there have been so many almosts and, and has-beens and, and ickiness behind the stage. Um, it's kind of a shock that our industry has survived at all. Well, John, it's been a pleasure talking to you. Thank you so much for coming on. Thanks. Thanks so much. Look forward to talking to you guys again. 